Hey there, I'm Drew Alvarez, and you're listening to the Discover Siskiyou podcast. Locally produced in beautiful, historic downtown Dunsmere, we highlight the best that California's North has to offer. On this episode, we'll be talking to three musicians, each with a unique relationship to Siskiyou County and the music industry. A retired Motown musician turned chiropractor, a working arranger and composer for the largest sheet music publisher in the world, and a young educator and professional musician raised right here in Siskiyou County. I've been playing music since before I was born. My mother was a big band jazz singer when she was carrying me. So I literally heard music in utero. My dad was a jazz upright bass player. I grew up with rehearsals in the basement, jam sessions, parties out and back with the barbecues where I'd go to bed and I'd get up in the morning and people would still be awake which kind of blew my mind as a young person. So I just grew up with a lot of music around all the time. That song you just heard was Chicken Lips. It aired on an NBC Kenny Rogers Christmas special in 1991 and was written by our first guest, Scott Durbin. I live in Weed, California, in Siskiyou County, with my wife. We are both retired chiropractors. Uh, We had Weed Chiropractic Clinic for 25 years. Previous to that, we had a completely different lives. I was a professional musician, studio musician, arranger, writer in the Detroit area, first with Motown Records and then moving to LA. I worked freelance and also continued to work with uh, Motown producers. We asked Scott to take us through that journey from professional musician to Siskiyou County chiropractor. It's one that's given Scott stories to tell, lessons to share, and a tangible enthusiasm for the life he's living. My parents started me out in fifth grade with piano lessons. I studied with the same lady in private lessons once a week, excluding a couple months in the summer from fifth grade through 12th grade. And in 12th grade, I entered a competition for high school students in Michigan, a a piano concerto competition. And I was one of the co-winners of it. So I won a scholarship to Michigan State University as a piano major. Now, along with that track was a parallel track where I started in seventh grade and beginning band playing trumpet. And I played trumpet all the way through playing in the Michigan State University jazz band. So I had a lot of experience with that also, and I was able to use both of those skills, you know, in becoming a professional musician. I ended up just starting a rock and roll band with my buddies in 1967, and we played, you know, professional full time till I, I played keyboard and trumpet with them till I was 31, I think. They talked me into it. They said, hey, Scott, we'll rent you a portable electronic organ 
if you will practice and learn three songs with us for the Joe Joseph's Pro Bowl Battle of the Bands in Lansing, Michigan. So we entered that and we learned some songs where I played trumpet and keyboard at the same time. So we won that. And so they conned me into renting the organ for the rest of the summer. And then we started doing a few, few gigs. We started driving around playing, oh, senior proms, playing, you know, weekends. We started making enough money so that we rented a house together and moved in as, and had the typical band house. We bought a 40 Econo line van to put our equipment in. And, you know, we got a booking agent and, and started playing. Back in the 60s, there were things called teen clubs where it was non-alcoholic, but it was like a bar. It was a singles bar for teenagers and they would have live music and they'd have kids up as go-go girls. If you remember the American bandstand era, we were the house band for WJIM TV in Lansing. They had uh, an American bandstand called Swing Lively and it was a once a week our show where they invited guest artists on just like the American bandstand format. And we were the house band and we would provide music for that every week at our expense. They never paid us a cent for doing that. But the publicity was fabulous because everybody all of a sudden knew who Plain Brown Rapper was. That was the name of our band. We should have probably gone ahead and moved to LA. That opportunity, there was a moment when we could have actually gotten a record deal, but we didn't have the money to do it. And we were in the same clubs in Chicago as Chicago Transit Authority, which became Chicago. And we also had brass. There were no other groups in the country using brass and rock and roll other than the stone R&B groups like James Brown. There were no other white rock and roll bands playing with Brad. So I started working with some of the musicians in Detroit and got hooked up with some of the arrangers that ranged for Stevie Wonder. And, and then I ended up meeting Stevie Wonder and he came up stage and played a couple songs with our band because in Lansing, is where the Michigan School for the Blind is. And it was only about two blocks from where I went to elementary school. So some of my classmates actually, their dad was uh, the superintendent. So we got a gig playing a concert at the Michigan School for the Blind. And Stevie, I think at that point was 17. I mean, Stevie was a trickster, was always pulling practical stunts on people. You know, like pretending he'd call back and pretend he was British and you wouldn't know who was calling me and then he'd start laughing. Stevie liked my songwriting. I didn't have a great voice, but he hooked me up with Lorraine Jackson, a singer from Pittsburgh, and he was going to produce our group. And I will never forget the day he called me and said, you know, I love your stuff and I want to uh, produce a group with your material and here's the singer that I want you to use. So she ended up moving to, from Pittsburgh to Detroit and we worked for about a year and a half. But you know, success in the music business is all about timing and luck. Um, there's plenty of talent out there, you know? And so it just didn't, it didn't work out personally with the group and with her. And so the whole thing just kind of, you know, fizzled out. It was a great experience and it certainly was, you know, inspiring for me to work with some of the best musicians on the planet, literally. You know, Michael Jackson's drummer, Jonathan Moffat, and the Jackson 5's producer, 
And so I would go in the studio with a unknown artist, usually a young black girl, and she would have maybe two or three original songs. And Hal Davis would say, record her songs and make a demo, producing their music, because they wanted singer-songwriters in that era. And it was, it was a weird time in the early 80s because it was the post-disco depression where they had milked disco to death with the Bee Gees and everything else. And nobody quite knew what direction the music business was going. So they were very gun-shy about signing new acts because they didn't know what the next thing was going to be. Even though he left the industry and those aspiring musicians a long time ago, Scott has maintained a relationship with young artists. I'm still trying to mentor young talent. It's very exciting. There's a number of people that have done very well that came from Siskiyou County because they've gotten a lot of support here from people that have had a lot of life experience in, in the business. It's easy to identify talent in, in a town of 3,000 people because they stick out like a red sore thumb. Our second guest is one of those talented individuals who grew up in Siskiyou. Emma Reynolds, a working musician with several albums under her belt, new EPs on the way, and a multifaceted skill set. She shared a memory of how guidance she received here in Siskiyou influenced her musical path and brought her to where she is now. It's kind of a funny, funny path filled with self-doubt, as so many musical paths are. When I finished high school, I wasn't planning on studying music at all. I was planning on studying English. I wanted to be a teacher. That, that part I had planned. I knew I wanted to teach since I was in like fourth grade. But I, I didn't think I was any good at music. I knew that I liked it. I really enjoyed it. But I didn't think that I necessarily possessed any fantastic talent for it. So I wasn't planning on pursuing it. And I was talking to Greg Eastman. And he was like, yeah, so where are you going to go? What are you going to study? I told him I was going to go to community college first and study English and kind of see what happened. And I was thinking of going to Cuesta because I liked San Luis Obispo and I was ready to get out of Shasta for a bit. And he was like, English? Well, you should study music. And he just said it in a way where it was so obvious to him. But I was like, what? Why? <laughs> and he was like, well, because you're good at it. You're good at teaching it. You should. That's 100% what you should do. And I was like, hmm. Greg Eastman wasn't the only local educator who influenced Emma. In fact, our next guest was also a part of her musical experience growing up in Siskiyou County. The first time I actually worked with Roger that I can remember was at one of the summer camps, the Jazz and Show Choir summer camp. And I had worked with his music, of course. I had sung his arrangements and everything, and, and I'm sure he had come into the classroom, but I had never gotten the chance to actually work with him as a director until jazz and show choir camp which was probably when i was like a freshman in high school it was immersive roger specifically taught at at a faster pace than i was used to but i mean he's such a he's such a pleasure to work with he's just so knowledgeable and his energy is so contagious and he's just very relatable and genuine and he's commanding you know of like 30 middle schoolers or high schoolers which after teaching in elementary schools at least i can i can respect that I'm Roger Emerson. I'm a, um, a music teacher and composer and arranger. I was first attracted to Siskiyou County, or first came to Siskiyou County from Los Angeles, where I grew up. Uh, when I was 14, my parents would bring me up to Fowler's campground. And um, 
Uh, I never thought I'd end up here. That was just sort of, you know, a great vacation. But when I was uh, 19, I'd spent a year at Whittier College. Uh, I was pursuing professional music. I was playing guitar and singing and, and cutting demos, trying to get a, a hit song, you know, recorded. And, and nothing was really happening. I was playing in a rock and roll band and working at a gas station at night. And um, so I had some friends who were a year younger than me in high school. And uh, they were coming up here to go to College of the Siskiyous. And they needed, they had three and they needed a fourth to, to fill out the dorm. And they said, hey, Roger, do you want to you want to come to Mount Shasta and Siskiyou County? And, and it was just at that point where nothing was breaking for me in Southern California. So I, um, this would have been 1969, um, came to College of the Siskiyous. There were only about 500 students at the time. There were a couple of terrific uh, music instructors. Kirby Shaw and George Mattis, and suddenly I was at home in two ways. One is that musically, uh, they were just the right match for for my musical skills. They were very encouraging, and they were, of course, into education, so they really encouraged me to finish a degree in music education. At the same time, I, I loved the mountains. So that's how I got up here, <laughs> just sort of on a fluke. It's amazing those decisions that you make sort of just off the cuff that send you in a direction that shapes your whole life. And since then, it's been a successful career and a good life for Roger. He started off as a student teacher, but soon became a full-time educator and ran into an interesting challenge. You know, I had some concerns. You know, you come out of college, you really don't know anything. And I remember uh, telling Kirby Shaw, who had been my, my mentor at the community college, I said, how am I ever going to teach clarinet? And he said, well, he goes, you'll get a book and a clarinet and you'll stay a week ahead of the kids. And that was sort of what happened. Um, but the interesting thing is that my instrumental ensembles were much better than my vocal ensembles, even though I was an applied vocal major. Part of it is you're working so hard at it. The other is that instrumental music has a sequence to it. You know, you have a band book and it's sequential. Singing doesn't tend to have that. You know, uh, kids come to you with all different kinds of backgrounds. You know, some have sung, some haven't. And because no fifth grader wants to start and sing hot cross buns, but they're willing to do that, you know, on a trumpet. So anyway, the, the fifth and sixth grade groups were okay, but the seventh, eighth grade group just sucked. It was just horrible. I mean, they're great kids, but I just, I didn't know what to do. And, you know, you've got uh, particularly boys with changing voices, which uh, results in what I call soprano alto mud. Uh, sometimes. So I had been writing songs in Southern California as a teenager and pitching songs. And so I, I, I had this epiphany that, you know, you call yourself a songwriter, now write a song that will work with these seventh and eighth graders. And so I wrote a song called First We Must Be Friends and, um, and had the guys do a little counter melody that was really easy, sort of call and response. And it worked. And so um, I said, well, if it works for them, maybe it's publishable. And, uh, um, you know, it's a long story, but basically I, I met someone who was published and, and she sent my materials into um, this gentleman at Hal Leonard, which is the world's largest print publisher. And I work for them now, but I talk about weird fate. And that's that the vice president whom she knew and had pitched the song to was fired and formed his own company and remembered me because the director of choral publications, the Hal Leonard, had turned down my piece, but he he needed material. So he called and said, do you want to publish for us? I said, of course. The neat thing is that he had garnered quite a bit of income uh, in order to promote. So I actually had a better shot with a new publisher than I would have sort of lost in the maze of the old publisher. 
And in fact, two of my pieces were the best-selling corals of that year at 75,000 copies each. Uh, the interesting thing is that that company was then bought back by Hal Leonard 10 years later. And so I'm, I ended up with the company I, I tried to get with in the beginning, and I've been with them the past 30 years. And now we'll take a listen to Roger's arrangement of Elijah Rock. When you look at everything Rogers produced in those last 30 years, it's prolific. His musicals have been performed across the country, his arrangements have been a formative part of many musical journeys, and he's arranged thousands of songs. It's not an exaggeration. If you search his name on Hal Leonard's website, literally over 4,000 items come up. All while nurturing his own creative side and supporting the endeavors of aspiring musicians in the community. And it turns out, in the true nature of a small town, he even worked with Emma's cousin, and she remembers it clearly. At that point, I guess, Matt had worked with him on multiple accounts and was working with him on school, S apostrophe C-O-O-L. And I remember they said it almost got picked up by the Disney Channel and then High School Musical got picked up instead. But they were like, it was either High School Musical or them. I remember the first time I hung out with Roger was at my cousin Matt's house. Um, and they were yeah going through the script and the music and talking about it and we were listening to it and it was I thought it was a lot of fun it was just the perfect amount of like dad joke corniness for that for the age group that they were kind of pitching but yeah I, I remember identifying with Roger's sense of humor a lot and I remember growing up and even now anytime someone says like a word or a short group of words or a phrase especially if it's like a tonal phrase I always have a song in my head playing that matches it like I'll, I'll hear songs to what people are saying not like original songs songs that exist they'll say something and I'll just start singing a song that has that lyric and I remember being at Matt's house and hanging out with Roger and he kept doing that and I was like holy crap my brain does that too that's awesome <laughs> We wondered what other moments or influences stood out in Emma's memory. I wasn't really exposed to a lot of instrumental jazz growing up. There was some, but it would be like the kind of funk fusion side of it. So, you know, 60s and later. But the jazz that I was introduced to that would be more traditional on the early side, you know, 1930s up until the 1960s, were vocal groups that my parents would listen to. So they would listen to like Manhattan Transfer and New York Voices. It's a very different rendition from the instrumental versions of that 
time period of music, but I still had those references. Um, and I would, <laughs> I grew up singing as a little kid. My mom was actually a music therapist, so we were always just singing. My mom said when I was like little, little, I would sing instead of speak. You know, everybody is given certain gifts, you know, and some people never identify what it is. They just, they just uh, go through life searching. Talent knows no geography or ethnicity or anything else. You're just gifted by that. That's why they call it gifted. So you didn't do anything to deserve it. You know, it's just here, take that. And I always tell young people, it's incumbent upon you to develop that talent. You owe the universe for getting that gift that you didn't do anything to deserve. And, you know, you need to listen to the mentors that come along, the, the teachers. So I went to community college in San Luis Obispo, and they do have a, a fantastic music program. But that wasn't the reason that I went there. I went there for the city. But I did register for some music classes. And then I ended up having the opportunity to study with Inga Swearingen. She's a performer, educator, human extraordinaire. She's just, she's just a beautiful, beautiful human. And I can 100% without a doubt say that the only reason I continued to do singing and then eventually become addicted to it is, is because of her. Again, I really enjoyed it. But one day she finally said, do you actually think that you're good? And I looked at her and I was like, oh, no, I mean, of course not. <laughs> like, what are you talking about, Inga? You're crazy. And she was just like, you are. And that is our cue to play some of Emma's title track from her 2021 Eminem album, You Are. Why I persisted with it was some of the players at, at Cuesta eventually asked me to, to sing with them. And that was just such a huge, 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 huge compliment for people that I looked up to musically and thought were really talented and kind of knew what they were doing. Um, as far as performing solo jazz, approached me and wanted to, to play with me. And I was like, whoa, no way. Um, and then, yeah, we started like playing at school and then I started doing gigs and then I started doing paid gigs and then I was just hooked forever. Yeah, the, just the community of it being able, like the communication that you end up having in a group 
non-verbally and just musically like I just was completely addicted to it I was like this is the coolest ever it's like we can all read each other's minds and so started Emma's trajectory of being completely dedicated to music following that talent she'd had since before she could talk and putting in the work in the LA music scene my message to young people with any talent is have the discipline to develop your talent because it's going to take time. There's no shortage of talent out there. Anybody that's been associated with any art in a college or big city situation knows there's no shortage of talent. There's lots of talent. There's a shortage of success and that just requires timing, luck, perseverance, other personal skill sets. You know, the music business is pretty brutal. I'm telling you, if it's like every night you're in a different place, you don't know where you are, you've got to be on. No one cares how good you were last night. They pay to see you tonight. It's not like a piece of graphic art that can stand on its own and be great forever. Performance is a unique animal every night. And some nights you're going to suck. You know, some nights you don't even want to deal with people and there you are. So, you know, it's brutal. I was, you know, quite well respected and had a name, developing a name in Detroit. You move to LA, you're nobody and nobody cares except the guy who gets your parking spot and he's glad you're not there. I remember just feeling so out of place, but I took this class and it was talking about how there's just so much going on in Southern California. There's so many people, just so much going on everywhere and everyone wants your attention for something. So you have to filter things out. You have to block things out. You have to kind of create your own little tunnel where you can see clearly kind of in order to survive. It helped me just understand because I remember feeling like all of them just have their face in their phones. They don't even see me. And so it just helped me have more understanding for that lifestyle and the and the people who have lived there their whole lives and never been anywhere else and it helped me understand why the the gig scene was different because yeah i'm playing music but really this the people at the table next to me just want to have a conversation with each other and they happened to pick a spot where there's also another human having her own conversation by singing and that was an interesting relationship to learn after all, the audience is half of any performance. Honestly, I think in up like into when I started studying at the university level to be cognizant of the other part of the community, which is the audience. Um, I don't know if it was like a vulnerability thing or if I was just really content in being caught up in what was going on on stage. I remember a gig that I was doing in San Luis Obispo and I remember just vibing with the band and I had taken a solo and I closed my eyes and it wasn't until I opened my eyes again that I realized I had been transported and that, oh yeah, there were also people in this room listening. And I remember opening my eyes and be like, oh, you're all here. Emma's come home to perform several times since she left the area and we were curious. How does live performance with a Siskiyou County audience compare? I feel like one of the differences is that when you have an audience, and granted, you know, when, I, when I've when i performed in Siskiyou County, 
the times that I have after living in LA. I don't know everyone. I've moved away. I don't know who's who's still there. Sometimes there's familiar faces, but like there's a lot of people that I don't know. When you're in a room and you're in a, you're in a comfortable in, environment cuz you you know you have your bandmates there and you're doing something that's comfortable to you and strangers who you don't know are are receptive and actively listening. It's just really encouraging and like humanizing and makes you feel really vulnerable but in a, in a safe way you're vulnerable but you're allowed to be it's it's really lovely being able to play places without a lot of noise pollution freeway noise street noise other people talking other businesses you know that's really refreshing i mean siskiyou county is is where i've experienced that the most just the least amount of noise pollution and it's really relaxing it kind of yeah just lets you exhale literally I just exhaled thinking about it because it's just one less thing that you have to kind of filter out while you're trying trying to be vulnerable I will say another thing that I experienced was I you know I'm, I'm bringing players that I play with from LA up to Siskiyou County and they definitely appreciate that opportunity I I feel comfortable there I grew up there but it is really a breath of fresh air um for them I don't know it's like it's just it is it just feels really zen to perform in Siskiyou County the, the times that I've gotten to do it nature and music pretty cool there's some magical mystical I don't know energy force or something and of course then you got the mountain I think anyone who's lived here and left comes back and, and breathes a sigh of relief little did Roger know we captured that exhale from Emma what I have found, at least in my choral community, and I think it's probably true even in the commercial industry, you know, what do the major artists do? They make a lot of money, then they buy a ranch in Idaho, <laughs> you know, and they set up a studio. People used to say, Roger, why don't you go to LA and really, you know, when I was younger and had hair and those kinds of things, said, why don't you go and work the, the commercial music thing? And I said, why? So I can come back here? Why don't I just stay here? There was a choir director named Weston Noble who said, that which is unexplainable is of the spirit. That was pretty broad, but for me, it sort of explained the creative, not process, but the inspiration that you don't know where it comes from. It's organic, uh, of the spirit nature. And I think that's just, it's easy here because it's sort of all around you. It's a nice balance because it's, it's sort of six months pedal the metal two or three months that are sort of, you know, you're doing uh, proofs and, and you know, writing ad copy and stuff for it. And then, you know, uh, four, four months of leisure of McLeod Reservoir on paddle boards. Oh, I, sh I shouldn't even say that on a pod. I don't want you guys, don't ever go over, that's horrible. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, or Lake Siskiyou, you know, fabulous. I love paddle boarding. Uh, we've got mountain bikes, we've got e-bikes. Which I, which I really dig because we got a lot of uphill. Yeah, I'm not a hardcore biker, so I think there's going to be, uh, there already is this big, you know, I don't say, what is, what is a resurgence? Can there be just a surgence? Well, I'm going to call it, there is a surgence of biking uh, up here and certainly paddleboarding and water sports. And I think we've, we've reached a bit of a tipping point up here of truly sort of starting to realize the potential of, of Siskiyou County as a recreational place to come. Because, you know, it, even out of the Bay Area, you know, you've got about, what, four and a half hours or so, maybe five hours. If, you, if you're going over to Tahoe, by the time you fight the traffic, you could be close to that. So why not, why not come where the, probably the prices are somewhat cheaper and 
the density is less and those kinds of things. I've lived a charm life. I get to live here, make a good living, and write music. Scott has also found the good life here in Siskiyou. He still plays regularly, gigs around Siskiyou County, and he does it in an area that lets him take advantage of the other things in life. Well, I just swam a, a mile this morning. And, you know, if you don't keep moving, you start waking up every morning with rigor mortis. And eventually, you can't move. And then you're in a pine box. Rigor mortis doesn't set in after death, but several decades <laughs> gradually before death. That's why you do yoga. Back to being in Siskiyou County, this is not a mecca for performing arts. I didn't move up here to be a professional musician. So I, I kind of left that, but I could never leave music. To this day, I'm writing songs. I'm practicing every day. In addition to that, I've always had a jazz band, you know, I'm working with local singers and musicians, playing in the bars and, and uh, restaurants and stuff like that. And I still do that now because I love getting out and, and playing for people. I haven't lost music at all. No one ever can take your art from you and it, it becomes more valuable over time as, as you cultivate it. It is challenging like it, in, in the way that it, it can be exhausting having the thing that you really love also be the thing that you monetize just because it's a lot of output, but still always rewarding. I mean, it's so hard, but it's everything. It's like what I need to survive you know, financially, but more so mentally and emotionally. And it gives you these relationships that are just so encouraging and motivating and inspiring. And it's the way you earn your living. It's, it's pretty wild. Many thanks to Scott Durbin, Emma Reynolds, and Roger Emerson for making this episode possible. Look for them on YouTube and Spotify. And for even more information, check out the show notes. To come find your inspiration in this beautiful place we are so lucky to call our home, visit discoversiskiyou.com and plan your trip north to see why we all love it so much.